I uh, hope they have those. Uh, maybe we need to start using those big blue buckets, Randy, to pass around for the collection. We're going to get so much. <laughs> good morning. It's good to, good to see everyone. Good morning to our live stream and our fellowship center. And uh, just thank you for being here today. Uh, I'm going to ask Silas Williams to come on up and do a little scripture reading for us. I love having these young men and women uh, every week uh, reading the Bible out loud to us. We, uh, you know, Paul told Timothy to practice that reading scriptures to the church, and so we want to follow in those steps. So, Silas, open up to Revelations twelve, ten, and eleven. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Amen. Thank you, Silas. Thank you, Silas. You know, we've been in this series of kingdom living. Ryan kicked us off and reminded us that kingdom living is totally counterculture. I mean, you look at our culture. If you're going to live for the kingdom, it's not, you're not going to live peacefully and run alongside culture. It's going to run into it. It's going to have some problems there, right? And then, of course, we were uh, challenged about kingdom uh, marriages. Uh, last week, those guys did a great job. And that looks different than what the world views as marriages and what the world views as success. Today, on 9-11, we're going to talk a little bit about kingdom conflict or kingdom living in response to evil. You know, uh, 9-11 does instantly bring about in our minds that evil exists. When our nation was attacked, our freedom was attacked, our faith was attacked, and it was done listening not just by enemies, it was done by the evil one. That's evil when you do those kinds of things. Uh, not only was our nation attacked then, uh, more recently, I, and I was just in uh, Uvalde, Texas, and I walked around that school and I looked at those pictures of those kids, and evil attacked a community. Remember, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But we need to not minimize the existence of evil in our world. It's not that we can't overcome it because Jesus Christ has overcome it for us. And we overcome, as the reading said, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony, and that we do not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. So we do have victory over it. But today, when we learn how to respond to evil, it's a, it, can be a, it can be a very heavy thing. But, but I want you to walk away with one thing, that uh, as, as kingdom people, we respond knowing victory already belongs to us. Okay? We're more than conquerors through Christ. Now, how do we respond? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, 
want to look at just a few verses, and then we're going to have uh, one of our other uh, elders, Randy, come and share with us. But in Hebrews chapter 10, when he's calling them to persevere, he tells them in this perseverance, in verse 22, he says, Let us draw near to God. He says you do that with a sincere heart, you do it with a solid faith, and you do it with a clean conscience because you've been cleaned and you've been washed. So one of our responses, in the text it says, let us. But I really want to say this is really for Mike Kellett more than anybody else. Let me. Let me draw near to God. Because sometimes I'm not conscious of needing to do that like I need to. Let me draw near to God. Have that solid faith and assurance that God is on my side. I can resist the devil. Remember, he'll flee. God will always be there for me. Let us draw near to God. Then he says, let us do something else. In verse 23, Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold on unswervingly to this hope that we have. This expectation that we have. Don't waver in this thing. Because whatever God promised, He can perform. He is faithful. And whatever promise He's made to us, God will come through in the end. We've got to stay strong. You know, one of the things I think, I uh, look back at my dad's generation, and, and I love the example of strength I see in that generation. And then I look sometimes at where we are now, and I think, you know what? Some, we're just not very tough sometimes. We need to develop this toughness in our faith without losing tenderness for people's lives. And that's about sometimes hard in ministry. But we've got to be tough. We've got to be tough-minded. We have to be tough in our faith. We have to know that God is stable. He will always be there for us, and we have to stay the course. That's the hope we have. It's firm and it's secure. God's faithful. Then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, let us or let me take courage together. Look what he says here. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I used to only hear that verse talked about to try to get people to come back to a church service sometime or another, you know? It's not about that. It's about being together. You and I need each other. This thing of Christianity is not something we live by ourselves out somewhere. We need each other. And we get encouragement from one another. And we need to spur each other on to do good works and toward love. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. You, you don't be overcome with evil. You overcome evil with good. Now that's a challenge when you've been in the middle of, of an attack from the evil one. Or when you've been in the middle of an attack from evil people. <coughs> but never doubt the victory belongs to us. So draw near to God. Hold on to hope. And take courage together. We're in this thing together. We need our forever family. We need to be together and walk this journey of faith together and have victory and persevere in tough times. 9 11 reminds us of an evil attack 
on a nation. Uvalde reminds me of an evil attack on a community. Randy's going to come and share a story about an evil attack really on a family. Randy, would you come and share with us, brother? Let's say a prayer, brother. Father, thank you for my brother here. He's taught me a lot. He's such a great example in serving you. Bless him today as he shares his heart. Thank you, Father, for using him in mighty ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. New York Times, December the 18th, 1973. Arab terrorists attacked U.S. jet in Rome. On December the 17th, Pan Am Flight 110, the Clipper Celestial, was scheduled to fly from Rome, Italy, to Beirut, Lebanon, then to Dahran, Saudi Arabia. At approximately 1.10 p.m. time, local, just as Flight 110 was boarding, approximately eight Palestinian terrorists made their way into the terminal armed with automatic weapons and grenades. The terrorists removed their weapons from handbags and began firing throughout the terminal, shattering windows and killing two. The crew in the cockpit of the aircraft was able to observe travelers and airport employees in the building running for cover. Captain Urbeck announced over the plane's public address system that there was some trouble in the terminal and ordered all on board to get down on the floor. Several of the gunmen ran across the tarmac toward the Pan Am jet, throwing phosphorus grenades through the open front and rear doors of the aircraft. The explosion knocked crew and passengers to the ground and the cabin filled with thick, acrid smoke from the resulting fires. Flight engineer Kenneth Frying was knocked to the gallery floor by the first grenade. I got hit by the concussion, he said later, and thought, Why aren't I dead? Then I realized it was some sort of incinerated device and smoke was pouring out of the canisters. And within seconds, there was more flashes as two phosphorus grenades went off inside the forward section. Two other grenades were thrown into the rear and suddenly the entire plane was filled with rolling black smoke. It was a miracle that so many people did get out, said First Officer Davison. I flew C-123s in Vietnam, and I never experienced anything that happened so fast or in which you were so helpless. But somehow, 40 pastors and crewmen managed to escape. Many suffered burns, including one passenger who died later. But 29 more were trapped inside, including all 11 passengers in the first-class section. And among the dead were four Moroccan officials... 14 relatives of employees of Aramco Oil Company, and Miss Bonnie Urbach, wife of the plane's captain. <clears throat> Two of the passengers that day were my 19-year-old sister, Janie, and me. I had turned 21 two days earlier, and we were traveling to Har- from Harding University to visit our parents who lived in Saudi Arabia. As we boarded our flight that morning... To Saudi Arabia, our seats were in the middle of the plane. 
I had a window seat on the flight in, so Janie was going to sit by the windows today. I had the middle seat, and an elderly lady with a walker sat in the aisle seat. The capacity of the 707 is 197 passengers, but that day there were only about seven on board. So I asked the flight attendant if I could move to an open window seat, and she told me to stand at the rear of the plane until everybody was seated. And I was there talking to her when the captain came on and announced that everyone should be on the floor. Soon after lying down, the explosions began, and the next thing I remember was waking up in darkness and a blinding, burning smoke. I could barely hear because the explosion had ruptured my eardrums and I was struggling to see. But since I was near the rear exit, there was light shining through the haze, and I could see one of the flight attendants struggling with the door. The explosion had blown the door uh, all the way open, and she couldn't pull it into a position to deploy the emergency slide. And there was a woman at the back screaming and, and wanting to jump. While holding her back, I was able to pull the door into position so the attendant could deploy the slide. Once I was on the ground and cleared my lungs, I noticed that the plane was on fire. I don't know how long I had been unconscious, but it must have been several minutes because there were fire trucks, ambulances, and rescue personnel already there. The rest of the afternoon was spent in complete confusion while being held and regrouped. By evening, we were transported to a downtown hotel, and at that, my, at that point, my only concern was to find my sister, Janie. A local reporter agreed to take me to area hospitals that were treating the wounded, and, a rent of, <clears throat> and eventually, around 3 a.m., I discovered she had not survived the attack. It was at that moment that alone, tired, injured, confused, and heartbroken, that reality sets in. It's in those moments that the loss of a loved one, the announcement of cancer, the reality that your baby has serious medical problems, an attack that steals your innocence, abuse that robs you of your childhood, a natural disaster, or a betrayal and divorce is when you ask, where are you, God? That was right where I was. Asking, where are you, God, and are you real? So where was God? The first glimpse came within a few weeks. After days of untold grief, confusion, and pain, we gathered ourselves together with friends and family in Little Rock for Janie's funeral. It was during this time that our luggage from the trip was found and returned to us. As difficult as this whole event would have been on my parents, opening the suitcase was added stress. But what they found were two gifts Janie had bought in Rome while we had been there. The first was the printing of the serenity prayer, which reads, God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, encourage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The second was a small figurine 
of Michelangelo's The Pieta, which depicts Mary holding her son Jesus after the crucifixion. This was the first hint that God was there. There was something about these two items that touched Janie's heart. They proved to be perfectly timed reminders that God, too, had suffered the loss of a child and understands our pain, as well as given a message of encouragement to be strong and trusting of God's promises. Over the next, or the last almost 50 years, next year to be 50 years, I can look back and see not only was God there, but he used what Satan had planned for evil to reveal his love and glory and used it for his eternal purpose. My challenge was understanding why God would have allowed Janie to be taken and not me. It was very evident to everyone that knew us that she was much closer to understanding who God was and reflecting his son in her life than I was. However, Romans 8.28 tells us that in God's sovereignty, all things remain under his rule and that nothing happens without either his direction or his permission. It took me a long time to accept the thing that all things include evil and suffering. One scripture that helped was Isaiah 57.1, The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared of evil. <clears throat> the second part of my challenge was, why was I spared? Again, Scripture provided me with some plausible and purposeful answers. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7-18, through 18, God tells us he uses his suffering to accomplish the glorious transformation of our character to prepare us for his service in this life and joy in the next. And I think we would all agree that the greatest character virtues that we know of would never exist without going through life's trials. So even in death, God was there protecting and preparing. I began to understand that Janie's sweet and loving life was spared from the evil of this world while mine, well, God obviously had work to do. So after some time of investigation, as I said, I questioned, was God there? Was he real? And for the first time in my young life, I had pretty much coasted through my Christianity. I was had a moment of awareness where I had to decide. So I investigated, what was I going to believe? That there was a supreme God that has always been here that created, or was I going to believe that we just came from nothing? But after several years, I concluded that God was who he said he was, and and he could do what he said he could do. So after that, I decided to listen to God rather than Satan and to believe that God was God. I would try to live my life even when faced with the worst days of my life by recognizing and acknowledging that both the good days and the bad days have been filtered by our Heavenly Father 
and to have courage that God would use me so that the works of God might be displayed in my life. Now, honestly, I certainly haven't reflected that in my behavior, but God has been merciful and he's been gracious. And he sent me Joe Neal. That was, that was hell. However, this morning is really not about my testimony, but rather my observations of how God works through and uses difficult times in our lives to provide this world with opportunities to come to know him through us. Yes, my observations, my discovery, my decision is important, but I think it's my observations of how God is revealed through many of you by what you've overcome and by a couple of illustrations that I'm going to share. Because it's a demonstration of our faith that becomes our witness to the world of who we are and whose we are. My first observation was with my mom and dad. How difficult can an event like this be to be anxiously awaiting the arrival of your children to celebrate a reunion and spending Christmas together, but to receive the unspeakable news that your worst nightmare has come true? However, not once have I ever witnessed a stumble in their faith. Now, I'm old enough now and experienced enough that I know that there weren't days that they questioned God and probably even blamed him. But never did they allow me to fall prey to Satan's answers to life's questions. In fact, their walk was even strengthened in their desire to live a life to honor Janie's and to be reunited with her someday. Because of the decision made in the shadow of this tragedy, my parents suffered financially when the oil industry crashed in the early 80s. Now, here was a couple that at the very beginning of their life together, Hurricane Audrey struck Cameron, Louisiana in 1957, and they lost their homes and their possessions, and then again suffering financial difficulties as they neared retirement. What a testimony. Not only for their son to witness, but they have always maintained a servant spirit, reflecting their knowledge and acceptance of God's sovereignty. And their faith has been revealed to everyone through their lives. I also witnessed the immediate response and impact that resulted from returning back to Harding. Hundreds of students that knew and loved Janie were now clearly aware of the severity and brevity of life. And amazingly, 40 years after the event, they had a memorial service for my sister at Harding. Well over 100 people attended to give testimonies to what her life meant to them and what her example meant to them. And they were gave a, put a plaque, a newer plaque, in the women's dorm. And what's amazing is my sister was just 19. There was nothing outstanding about my sister. No accomplishments, no special talents, other than a deep and abiding love for Jesus. 
in that witness that carried for 40 years carries into this generation. I have some notes written by people that she was named after or they were named after her. First one was my niece, Memory Jane Cameron Stein. I often get questions as to how I got my name, Memory Jane, because it is so unique and most people have never met anyone named Memory. I love that I have such a unique name because when I get asked, I get to share Janie's story and how I got to be named in memory of her. I love that there's a special person behind my name. My mom shares with me how much Janie meant to her as an older role model, cousin, and friend. I feel very privileged to be named in memory of Janie and to carry on her name. My daughter, Caitlin Jane Kirby Taylor, wrote this. I have always been proud to carry the name Jane. Not only is it a beautiful name, it represents a beautiful woman. Although I never knew my Aunt Janie, I knew growing up what an incredible young woman she was and what her name stood for. Being named after someone automatically sets a challenge for what kind of person you're supposed to be. Every person that I've met that knew Janie was eager to tell me what a loving, fun, caring, sweet, and admirable person she was. The most common thing that I've heard about her is that she was as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. What a name to live up to. I'm honored and humbled to carry her name and more than eager to live up to it. One of our best friends at Harding was a guy named Stephen Keller. He was good friends with Janie, and he wanted to name his daughter after her. And this is what Janie Ann Keller wrote. When I was a little girl, my daddy told me about how I was named after one of his best friends at Harding. He told me she had passed away during school and how much she meant to him. And how he's always wanted to be able to honor her by naming his daughter after her. I don't understand, I didn't understand that, what this was all about until I was old enough to go to Harding myself. The first day I moved into my dorm in Harding, dad took me over to a picture on the wall and said, Janie Ann, this is my friend. (laughs) Janie Kirby. I want you to read what this plaque says about her. And if you live up to the words written, you'll be honored and you will be as loved as your friend, by your friends as she was. I read the words and knew she was the kind of person I wanted to be in my life. 
I feel blessed to be carrying her name and honored to know I'm carrying on her legacy. Two days after I turned 21, my view of life changed forever. Since that day, not only have I seen how God has worked through this event, I have seen God work through hundreds of similar tragic and difficult times. Many of those events played out right here at WFR. And God provided the strength for you to witness to our community your faith, your love, your forgiveness, your kindness, and your hope. Evil had no part in God's original creation, but it was part of his original plan. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works out everything in conformity to, with the purpose of his will. God let Job's face terrible trials with no explanation. We share that in common with Job. God does not specifically explain why he permits evil and suffering to fall upon us. He simply wants us to trust him and to exhibit our faith in his eternal purpose. Ephesians tells us that we were chosen for his purpose and that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God is working in us. God is working in you. He has rescued us. He has prepared us even and maybe specifically through the terrible times. So realize that with the evil that we bring, even with the evil that we bring upon ourselves, our God can use it for his purpose and his kingdom. So how can God use us? How can he use you? Well, when people see your joy, yet know your pain, it's a powerful witness of faith. When others see you giving, when they know how much has been taken from you, it's a powerful testimony of trust. When friends see your hopefulness, when they know your past despair, it sends a powerful message of hope. When you extend kindness in the shadow of a life of misery, you send a powerful example of grace. And when the world sees you love, when they know you were mistreated and unloved, it's a powerful illustration of love. So we must ask ourselves, what will our legacies be? And how will our lives affect those around us, even to the next generation? So when you're at your darkest moments in your life and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can know that God has heard your plea before. From his son came this very human cry of fear, confusion, pain, and sorrow. However, it is at this very moment of deepest despair that we can expect to see God's glory soon to be revealed when he will send a reminder of a redeemer that claims victory over this world's evil and suffering and provides hope. What I hope to communicate this morning is whether you're 19 or you're 91, your life matters to God and to his kingdom. So don't waste it. 
that God can use the good, the bad, and even the ugly days in our lives for his kingdom if we choose to be his follower. And we can overcome the pain, the sorrow, and even the evil of this world and make a difference in people's lives and in God's kingdom once we understand and have faith to accept Jesus as our Savior, to listen to the Spirit that's within us, to focus on heaven that awaits us, and to remember we have a God who is always there. Thank you. Just remain standing, please. I want to ask you to join me in a prayer before we offer the invitation. If you would like to grab someone's hand beside you, you're welcome to. Who's the one that uh, has overcome evil for us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive us our trespasses against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you'd like to help overcome evil, depending on the grace of God, The invitation is open to you today. You can come while we sing.